Welcome back to Rockstock Channel. We are extremely privileged today to have Jigger Shah from the Department of Energy Loan Projects Office. It is Monday, February 13th. I'm just going to give a bit of an intro. We've been focused, obviously, a lot on developing companies in the mining space. We've had a very strong focus on onshoring ex-China supply chains. We've done a couple of videos with John Miller at Cowan & Company. And then with Ben Steinberg, you know, at a lobbying firm, Ben Strategies, we also did a, a Minds and Money event called Big Money Biden, which had Todd Malin of Talon Metals, James Calloway of Ioneer, you know, and Austin Devaney of Piedmont on, among others. So we, we as a channel have been focused very much on the politics, the local politics, U.S. politics and the geopolitics of supply chains for the, the battery thematic. And we've been doing this for a long time through the Trump administration and now in the Biden administration. And we flagged the Inflation Reduction Act in August as a very underappreciated catalyst to investment in these supply chains. And we think, you know, it's still underappreciated, but Jigger, you and your boss, Jennifer Granholm, as advocates of American industrial policy, you know, American Belt and Road, or whatever you want to call it, have been, there's been a huge push for this, but you guys have been among, you're promoting the narrative exceptionally well. So I've been on the Loan Projects Office. I've listened to multiple podcasts of yours, Jigger. You were a podcaster for six years or so, as well as a very successful entrepreneur before joining government. I, I don't want to delve into a lot of those things. I would just strongly encourage all of our viewers to look up Jigger and listen to as much uh, of him and, and Jennifer Granholm as you can consume, uh, because <laughs> he's covering a, a great deal of, of topics. But as a first point of departure, Steve Levine, who we've had on the podcast, uh, I'd recommend you you watch that video with you because he addresses a lot of the topics. And like him, you're barely scratching the surface in 45 minutes. And we hope, like you promised him, that maybe you can come on here, you know, once a quarter, every six months or so, and we'll, we'll see how that goes. But we have a bunch of questions here and where we can kind of go with this. We are very much focused on pre-development, you know, lithium, graphite, nickel companies, you know, in America and, and friends. Uh, but if you, there's been a whole of government approach here. I mean, we're friends with Simon Moore's benchmark minerals. And yeah. when he was, when he was in front of, you know, Lisa Murkowski, when she was the head of the committee and basically telling, you know, the world that the balance of industrial power is at risk in America as a bystander, You've used similar language in, in some of the podcasts I've listened to that like we're on a war footing, right? This is a battery arms race. And, and, and it's not just batteries. You're, you're covering, we're going to put up some slides that your office puts out in terms of loan applications and by category. So we are very focused here on basically what's critical minerals. I guess the ATVM, the Advanced Technology Vehicle Manufacturing, that is the, the area where our companies we represent, whether it be Syrah, you know, or Ioneer or others who have applications pending with you like Piedmont and Lithium Americas. I mean, that's fundamentally the program that they are trying to pull 500 million, a billion or $2 billion, you know, out to finance their projects. So I want to talk a little bit about that, but you could speak a bit more broadly about all the activity, the various elements of the government. There are grants, there are tax incentives, but your offices, you're focused on loans. You have been given a very significant increase in loan authority you know, through the Inflation Reduction Act. And uh, if you could just talk about what 
the types of loans. I mean, I've looked at them, Syrah, they're like 10-year loans, yeah. two-year grace periods, very low interest rates, they're 10-year treasuries. And this compares to much more expensive loans that are available in the public market if they're available. And they're almost never available for a pre-production company because these markets are, are very immature. So, so yeah. you talk about the bridge to bankability. Talk about, I guess, what your office does and how you're approaching our segment. There's a lot of incentives on the demand side, and you're focused on the supply, right? This is supply-side economics. This is not voodoo supply-side yeah. economics. This is like real industrial policy economics. So just tell us how you think about that, and, and then we'll have a whole bunch of other questions. Yeah, no, well, first of all, thanks for having me on. Obviously, very important topic, and um, thanks for you know doing what you do to to help support the mission here. Look, I think that let me first answer the question that you've asked, which is on the loan programs office, and then we can maybe broaden it a little bit. The loan programs office is a commercial bank. There is no other way to to like describe what we do, right? We are a commercial bank. We have a public policy mandate, so we lean in when other people don't lean in. But our approach to reviewing loans is exactly the same as a commercial bank. Now, when we review a loan, we might say, wow, that's super risky. And so then we have to put up collateral, right, for that loan. So we might say, we're putting this loan out the door, but we have a 20% chance of losing our shirt on this thing. And so we're going to put up for a $100 million loan, $20 million into reserves or whatever to cover future losses, right? So we have more flexibility than a commercial bank does, but our evaluation process and where we sit in the entire capital formation process is at the very end of the process where people have gotten NEPA, they're like on the track to getting NEPA, they figured out you know, what the resource is and what the quality is, they can demonstrate to us exactly what processing approach they're gonna be using to you know, create sort of the, the end products, et cetera. And so we have other parts of the Department of Energy, right? So the manufacturing supply chains office that did the $2.8 billion worth of grants. You've got the Defense Production Act folks over at DOD that have you know $500 million that they're putting out the door. So you have other parts of the government that actually have roles to play for earlier stage companies. And then the, the loan programs office really focuses on the very end of the process. And how much capital do you have now to deploy in total? Because that was increased. And well, yeah. it changes by the week. We're putting money out the door, Howard. So uh, <laughs> so it's, um, you know, I think we started with roughly 17 billion in the ATVM program, the Advanced Technology Vehicle Manufacturing Program, which I think is what we're really talking about here. Mm -hmm. And then we added 40 billion roughly of capacity to that program in the Inflation Reduction Act. So that put us at 57 billion. Okay. And then as you saw, we made the announcement with Redwood Materials last week. So that's 2 billion, right? We saw the announcement with Ioneer. So that's, you know, roughly 700 million. And so like there's, so there's money going out the door as well. So let's put it above $50 billion worth of capacity left. There's a lot of areas where we can provide. It's not for new construction as much. Well, it could be, but it's it's more for repurposing existing assets, and there's no innovation requirement there. That number gets you know sort of bantied about at 250 billion dollars, but what it really is is five billion dollars of credit subsidy. And so, if we do very risky loans, that five billion turns into 50 billion of loan authority. And if we do very low risk loans, it could be 250 billion of loan authority. 
Could that program be used if someone wanted to put a, a nickel or graphite or lithium processing plant on, you know, an old coal mine? Could funding come for that or is only from yeah. ATVM? Yeah, could. I mean, it could for sure. In general, I would say ATVM is always better than the rest of the programs. I mean, just the way it operates is very flexible. So you would only use the other programs if you didn't qualify for ATVM, right? Okay. So. So ATVM is very flexible in the way that it's structured. Okay. Uh, so we've been involved with a number of our companies for a long time. So through the Trump administration, and I had my eye on the ATVM, whatever, five, six, seven years ago. And I wondered if it could be used. There's been a bipartisan issue and there were steps taken, I think, by the Trump administration in the Department of Energy that helped redefine what is a vehicle component. The, the definition of what qualifies for ATVM now is broader than it was when I think Tesla was just out there and a Nissan Leaf, et cetera. Is that correct? Like it has been yeah, so critical critical minerals broadly was expanded under the Trump administration and and then additional categories were codified within the bipartisan infrastructure law. So, you know, so we were expanded into heavy trucks and medium duty trucks, aircraft, uh, locomotive, marine, as well as critical minerals and battery manufacturing. And the grants that came, the $2.8 billion of grants, that's not your office, but it is part of the Department of Energy. Is And some of the applicants are applying for both. So I do an analysis of all of those loans that there were a bunch of graphite. There was one in nickel, I think in North yeah. Dakota. I want to talk mostly about lithium, but on graphite, I noticed that funded, I guess Syra got two things. They got a grant, then they got a loan you know, from you. That's a natural yeah. graphite story, but also Novonics got funding. That's a synthetic graphite story. And I've also looked at like papers that the, the administration put out, I think a, a, the hundred day yeah. paper where, where they define things. And I noticed when reading the graphite that there didn't, in lithium, there's all this talk about like clean and dirty lithium and ways of doing things. And in graphite, yeah. it's natural, you know, and then there's synthetic. Synthetic is derived from like a fossil fuel, but there didn't seem to be such a focus in, in from the administration on that distinction between natural and synthetic, dirty, not dirty. Does that factor into the thinking, you know, of the government? Because like Novonix is partnered with Philips 66, like an oil company, right? You know, and yeah, so just curious I mean, about that. So in general, I'd say that we start with the fact that the U.S. is not blessed with a lot of natural graphite that we know of in, in the country that, that, you know, that folks think that they can... Uh, profitably extract and put into service, right? So the the Syra project is taking you know one of the the best graphite sources in the world in Mozambique and then bringing the ore to Vidalia, Louisiana, and processing it there, right? So let's let's start with that, right? That's on the natural side. Then on the synthetic side, I think we can all agree that the way that China makes synthetic graphite is crazy dirty for the planet. Right. And so, you know, ramping that up here in the United States is not something we want to do. We do have a tremendous amount of innovation happening on the synthetic graphite side, not only within uh, the US, but also in places around the world. And many folks are looking to scale up those synthetic next generation processes here in the United States. And we're all for that. And so there's, a, there's several folks who have a, a synthetic graphite approach that have applied to the loan programs office that I can't discuss specifically, but but we're evaluating their applications and you know seeing whether we think that they can be competitive in, in the marketplace. You mentioned earlier, like the, the DOD has 500 million. I know there's the, was it the DFC, Development Finance Corp? Yeah. They, wrote a, they wrote an equity check into Brazil. I'm just wondering, 
There's a lot of talk about friend shoring. Yeah, our authority is for use of building uh, infrastructure here in the United States, right? So when you look at the Vidalia, Louisiana project for Syra, we did not fund the mine in Mozambique. We funded the processing facility here in Louisiana, right? So whereas if the DFC believes it to be a good investment, they could fund the mine in Mozambique because they're meant to provide debt and equity solutions for international markets, right? So that's that part. On the DOD side, I'd say that we get a lot of inquiries from people saying, we have been looking at this you know, particular mine in Alaska for 10 years and think that there's a lot of a potential here. Or we think that you know we're looking at this early stage opportunity here or there or some, somewhere else, right? And DOD can look at that and say, actually, on a you know, risk-adjusted basis, this is a really good opportunity. Here's a $14 million, you know, award to go and, you know, search that out and make that more mature and do more testing so that you can actually get to a more mature place where investors might be interested and or um, the loan programs office could get involved. During the pandemic, Mark Andreessen of Andreessen Horowitz who put out this uh, piece, you know, it's time to build you know, government doesn't do a lot of, you know, they do certain things well and they do things like unwell. And and I think you're coming with a very much business and venture capital mindset to do this properly. So to, to show America yeah. that you can actually get it done. Your loan office is significantly addressing the cost of capital, cost of debt, not the cost of equity, but the cost of debt. You're lowering the cost of debt enormously. If you get a loan, if Ioneer's loan goes through or any of these loans goes through, or I think the, the Vidalia loan, it's 10 years with a two-year grace period at 10-year treasuries with no margin, right? So the, the borrowing at you know 3.8% or something like that in secured debt. But if I compare that to like mineral resources, which did a billion dollar euro bond, this is a producing company you know, they, they, this is unsecured debt, but they got like five well, years paper at eight and a quarter or something like that. Right. right? Well, so, and you can't compare all this stuff, right? Let's be clear about what we do. Because I feel like people just get very spun in circles about this stuff. When you have a large operating company like the oil majors or like the mining majors, right? Those companies are credit rated, right? So they actually like have an operating business. S&P and Moody's gives them a credit rating and they can raise money on the bond market using their credit rating all day, right? Yeah. Then you've got a different market, which is like sort of the high yield bond market, right? And that is what the hydro, you know, the hydraulic fracturing folks used in 2009, right? We raised $300 billion of, you know, what people affectionately call junk bonds for, that industry, right? And these are all basically, you know, companies that say, I have this oil patch and I've got this USGS survey and I've got this thing and whatever, and people give them money and they get whatever, 300 basis points higher return on those bonds than they would have gotten for, you know, like something that was, you know, more mid-grade like triple B minus or whatever it is, right? And then those yields expand in, you know, when we're going into, you know, sort of a weaker economic outlook. And they contract when folks are bullish and they feel like everything is is hunky dory, right? And so, so that entire conversation, right? On the one hand, is corporate finance, right? So when you look at the BPs, the Exxon's, and the Chevrons of the world, but also the BHPs and the Rio Tintos, they are all balance sheet unified balance sheet financing, right? So everything goes through one balance sheet, like whether it's an operating mine or whether it's something more speculative on the E and P side, right? 
when you look at the renewable energy industry, the renewable energy industry doesn't work that way. So if you look at Nextera, for instance, which has a, you know, 100 plus billion dollar market cap, and they buy all these wind and solar farms around the country. Every one of those wind and solar farms is funded through a special purpose vehicle with its own debt and equity structure. And if any one of those projects fails, Nextera corporate has no obligation to fill in the gap and to fund those bondholders back, right? So every one of those projects is funded using a project finance structure, right? And LPO does project finance, right? So we might ask someone to give us a corporate guarantee during, let's say, the construction period or during some other period. But at some point, we generally like move away from the corporate guarantee and really look at you know the project itself. And our collateral and our step-in rights are really just on that project. Right. And so so that is the main bread and butter business that LPO is in. Now, it changes depending on what people are asking us for. And we have done corporate stuff in the past as well. But we really are doing project finance. Right. So we're saying how much lithium is there? What's the processing thing for, you know, like cost worth? And then and then we want to make sure that we, we're getting some sort of corporate guarantee or some sort of personal guarantee, for that matter, through like a very high risk period like construction. Right. But once they've met certain milestones and they're producing and things are working, et cetera, then we're happy to release a lot of those guarantees if, um, you know, if they if they hit milestones. Right. So so then you're right that we are reducing the weighted average cost of capital for those particular projects with um, with the uh, with the debt that we're providing. But I want to make sure we're crystal clear that, like. What we're providing, you know, has no upside and only downside. Right. So so it's not like we get 20 percent ownership in the company through some sort of venture debt structure so that if something goes beautifully, that we get, you know, a much high, you know, much higher outsized return. Tesla did really well, but we didn't get any upside on Tesla. We got paid back, you know, U.S. Treasuries. Right. Uh, on that loan. Right. And um, and so so that is the risk reward matrix that we operate under, which is as you rightly point out is different than venture capital or high yield bonds on Wall Street or or other things that the mining industry traditionally has taken advantage of. It's amazing if I compare like Namaska went bankrupt, right? And Altura in lithium went bankrupt, they were forced to get hedge fund like loans for their projects that were at very high interest rate, whether the eleven and a half or fifteen percent, with which came with warrants attached, right? And yeah. What I'm saying is that yeah, Rio Tinto can can borrow off of their own balance sheet, but you know they're looking at well, what's going to be the return you know of this you know if they were invested. No, lithium, I think that's, you know, that's, that's totally right. So if Rio Tinto came to us and said, "Hey, we have all these tailings from this mine that we have been operating, and we would like to do this you know semi risky approach where we have to put in three hundred million dollars to process the tailings and get a lot more out of it, right? But we're not going to do it because the economics of that is only a 10% unlevered return. And, you know, our CFO is saying we've got other opportunities that are 20%. So we're not going to use our corporate capital for this. They could come to us and say, well, would you guys put up 80% of the capital on this $200 million at U.S. Treasuries? And, and you know, and they put in 20%. And then now the the return on their equity is in the 20s, right? Because we put in 80% at, at a much lower interest rate. We would do that deal all day long. Okay. And that's a very good point. Cause I sometimes wonder like Albemarle got a grant 
right, to convert spodumene in North Carolina. Not mine, and I want to get to that mining versus processing question, but I looked at that and said, like, well, they're a big company. They could, they're, they're investment grade. You know, they could borrow at 4%. They're going to build that mine regardless. Isn't that corporate welfare to kind of give a grant, you know, free money to Albemarle? Well, I mean, I mean, I don't know the particulars of that particular deal. So, I mean, I can get back to you on that. But I, I would say that in general, large corporations have proven themselves time and time again to be incompetent when it comes to meeting the moment in the market. Right, whether it's like Rio Tinto and BHP, or whether it's Albemarle or other people, the notion that they actually like move at the speed of some sort of capitalist framework is ridiculous, right? And so I can imagine that they were not going to move forward with this project if not for the resources that we provided. Um, and they have all sorts of excuses, rates of return, you know, capital markets issues, whatever, whatever, right? But it is in the in the national interests of the. Uh, of the United States and our allies to get this stuff moving faster. And so I can imagine that like that particular grant was essential for Albemarle to move faster. Okay. Uh, I, I think it, Albemarle has a relatively high valuation from, because it's positioned as a specialty chemical company and trades at a higher multiple, but companies like Rio Tinto and and BHP and mining companies general trade at very, very low multiples. So a former client of ours, Robert Friedland, a very successful mining entrepreneur has been tweeting that like all the money over the last 30 years, and also Jim Latinsky has said the same thing. Chamath Palhapatia has yeah. said it, Byron Wien, you know, like for 30 years, you've had all this investment in tech, right? You know, in software related activities and you know, the mining industry has been starved for capital, right? Like you, you have all the movement into ESG. Well, that's because that, that capital doesn't, right. But that's because that capital doesn't want to do mining. Like I'm tired of people not understanding how the capital markets works. It's not one pool of money. Like I feel like people like learned how capital markets work in their seventh grade class for like business. And they're like, this is what equity does. This is what debt does. This is what like you should do as you get older, you should move out of equity into bonds. Like that, like that is not how anything works, right? And so like, if you wanna go through it, let's go through it, right? But like, but people that invest in mining and, and, and uh, oil and gas, for instance, will never invest in solar and wind, ever. Even if I can prove to them that I'm making 36% returns and the oil and gas industry has on average made 9% returns over the last 20 years right? Like the, it's, it's just two different mindsets. Like the people who invest in mining, right? They get the fact that you're investing in something that has commodity cycles, right? And these people may have made a ton of money this year because of where commodities have gone, but they lost their shirt after the 2007 boom, when we were in what everyone called a, you know, commodity super cycle that was going to go on forever, that never was going to like have a down cycle. People overinvested in mining back then, and then they lost their shirt. And as a result, all those companies lost their nerve, right? And they decided to like get super conservative. And we're dealing with that today. They all have PTSD today from the 2008 <laughs> crisis, right? And so like, so like, let's not like play games. I find that like people are fast and loose with their, their language all the time. And those people are those, those people who invest in Google and like Apple and tech and whatever else have no interest in investing in mining and will never invest in mining. And if you look at the, we must build, you know, uh, piece that, that Mark Andreessen wrote, 
I don't think he changed a single dollar of his own personal investment portfolio based on that op-ed that he wrote. Right. So like, let's uh, I, not get hot and bothered about these things. Well, I, I agree on that. And, and I think a lot of it, though, does come to narrative and opinion about the mining industry. It's not. And it comes to the point like I see and you mentioned fracking. I see an opportunity in the United States and let's say Canada and possibly in Mexico to in the next 10 years go from net import dependency to being able to export. We have the resources here. It's just if you can channel enough money into it and you need to overinvest because all these projects are late and they're 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 more expensive. So we needed like an overinvestment now in these markets, but we're not in a commodity super cycle mentality. The equity markets have started to do okay, but you know, it was only two years ago that lithium prices were much cheaper. Well what's the so, number? I mean how much money do you need, right? Like we had 300 billion or so go into the first four years or five years of the hydraulic fracturing piece. Like, give me a number. What, what, what do you think overinvestment looks like in, in the mining industry here in the United States? I would put the United States and Canada together. And I think it's, sure. you know, 50 to $100 billion. It's available. There's no question. It's not such a huge number. I mean, the, the oil companies are making $25 billion each, and they spend $25 billion each year on CapEx, right? So right. the so money, what are we... it's not that much. So what are we missing, right? So like, you know, the loan programs office has $50 billion to put to work. So that's 50 right there, right? Mm -hmm. And then you've got um, you've got equity investors that, you know, have put some money in, right? And then you've got, you know, whatever, like other different pots of money. So tell me what the gap is. Like what, what like, because there's lots of different gaps, right? On this side, you've got people who have purely speculative efforts where the Defense Production Act will give them $15 million if they have enough data to, to prove that it's worth putting $15 million into, right? Then on, on then you've got demonstration dollars, which the, you know, the manufacturing and supply chain office out of DOE will put money into, and they've got another billion and a half dollars or so left of um of that like sort of more demonstration type stuff for synthetic graphite for other stuff where you think it works, it kind of has worked in the lab, it's worked at like 120th scale, but now you got to prove it at full scale, fine. Like they've got money for that. And then we've got money over here, right? But like, I feel like in general, the gap that we're talking about, it's pretty small. Okay. The gap is small, but the cost of equity is is high because a lot of the companies are still like- But that's no not venture. changing, Howard. I. Yeah. That is not changing. I guarantee you the cost of equity for the mining industry is not changing. I can reduce the I can reduce the overall dollars that they need to raise because mm -hmm. I can substitute some of that equity for debt. But the investors in mining like a very high rate of return. That is what they're used to. And in general, they're not coming in for less money. And then you got to educate the next group. Now, if you go to Houston, like you should go to Sarah Week, right? I met, I don't know, 15, 20 of those investors there. And they all, you know, were big investors, not only in hydraulic fracturing, but also in the supply chain of, of that entire Permian base and other places. They don't really want to do any more in that space because it's really now the oil majors that have taken all that over. And mm -hmm. so they're looking for the next big thing. They're looking at geothermal. They're looking at, you know, like some of these other sectors. You should go down there and pitch them. They got $5 billion lying around that they want to invest in this stuff. Uh, in general, oil companies, I, I've pitched them, other people have pitched them. Coke has come in into geothermal. They're they're happy with liquid. They're not happy with hard rock. 
So in general, the oil companies, as, as we have found. But you also mentioned Mark Andreessen. He's not allocated any dollars to it. That There's all of this, like in Chamath Palapatia, he invested actually in, in MP materials. There are very few people who have actually allocated some dollars to hard rock mining because they think it's environmentally unfriendly. You haven't seen until GM, GM coming into lithium Americas, you know, they're actually now going to be mining. Like, and if I look at your loan programs office, you have a picture of critical minerals. I look at it. It looks like a geothermal plant. It doesn't look like a mine. Right. So th there's a perception. Well, like, we're and, doing and processing. You, you, <laughs> we're, we're, exactly. I mean, we're... But, but why aren't you doing mining? Well, I mean, look, I think that in general, the loan programs office is part of the Department of Energy. The Department of Energy does processing. Right now, we can do mining when it comes to next generation technology. So, for instance, a lot of people have come to us for uh, next generation equipment that's electric instead of diesel powered. Right. For some of the big you know, equipment and that kind of stuff. Right. That has a lot of innovation in it. And that like is something that we can fund. Right. But the actual digging up of rock is not something that the Department of Energy does. Right. Like that is not our ethos. That's not where we spend R&D. Right. We spend R&D in like in the processing and the extraction like equipment. Right. And figuring out how to make that more efficient, more, you know, environmentally friendly, et cetera. Right. And so I just think it's important for you to like not say the Department of Energy is now the Department of whatever it takes to do everything from front to back. The Department of Energy still has its roots in the national laboratory system, 10,000 engineers, scientists and experts that sit on our platform, right? And so we're not going to depart from in a huge way from what we know and what we're an expert in. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be the Department of Energy. There's there's no mining department of like in America that actually is fundamentally supporting mining. And to the extent that there's a lobbying group like the National Mining Association, it's always like tagged to kind of coal. The perception of but mining is, that, is always kind of like linked to coal. But is that what NMA is lobbying for? I mean, I just keynoted one of their breakfasts that they didn't tell me that they were lobbying for the federal government to get into mining. Right. What they were saying is we want permitting to happen faster. We want yeah. NEPA to happen faster. Like this thing took an average of six years. It should take only one year. Like they're there. I have not heard from anybody at the National Mining Association that that they need additional dollars from the federal government to do equity or debt for that matter into the actual mining itself. If they want that, I mean, you know, they know where the senators and congressmen live. They could mm -hmm. go call them and say, hey, expand Jigger's remit to include mining. But they haven't asked us to do that. And I, I, I want to make sure that we're just like, I feel like in general, we're all outcomes driven, right? We want a certain amount of minerals. We want to be able to like power the energy transition, right? So I think we're all on the same page. And then now what we're saying is, is that there are these certain roadblocks in capital formation along the chain. And so what I would recommend that we do on a follow-up conversation, but I'm also happy to do it here, is we go through each one of these parts of the capital formation chain and go through it systematically. Because it's not clear to me that we actually have as big of a gap as you're suggesting. I do think that when you look at the corporate financing piece of this, there are a lot more people who are interested in that, that 20 million, 40 million, $50 million check than there were before. And so now I think the gap that's remaining is the equity checks required to match our loans or the Syras, the Ioneers, the others, because those are big checks.
if new extraction technologies for lithium are delayed or or unsuccessful, then the US won't produce sufficient battery grade, you know, in time. You spoke briefly about funding projects outside the US, but I guess in terms of securing self-sufficiency, if there is a point in time where there is a clear risk that the the new technologies won't get there, would would you consider funding uh, projects outside the US in order to to get to self-sufficiency? I mean, is is it is it well? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that yes. I mean, so the the loan programs office is not allowed to right. So just to be clear, like we're not allowed to fund projects out of the US, but the US government can right. So whether it's through the the DFC or Exim Bank or through uh, other types of programs that we have at DOD, et cetera, we can fund things outside. And I think we are like, so I think there's a, there's a mapping going on of all the lithium and other types of projects throughout all of the companies that have, sorry, countries that have free trade agreements with the U S right. I mean, as you saw, the framework is that you've got that tax credit that has come out of the IRA and that it, that, that tax credit is, is still crystal clear that like, if you want to buy a vehicle, and you want to then use that tax credit, you have to meet the requirements of uh, content from not only the US, but also our free trade agreement partners, right? And so that has created an extraordinary amount of capital formation to into all of those countries that have um, that meet that, that guideline, right? And so whether that capital formation comes from the DFC or Exim Bank, et cetera, or whether that capital formation comes from private sources, I think there's a huge uh, push that's occurred based on that policy. Right. And to the extent that you make a loan and something goes into operation, if something goes wrong, what is it that you would then do? How would you look to recover your your funding? Practically? Well, I think it depends on what goes wrong, right? In general, the, the loan programs office does a tremendous amount of due diligence. As I explained earlier, we're at the sort of end of the process, not at the beginning of the process, right? So we've already determined that the actual resources there, right? That's part of our due diligence. So I think that what we're talking about is is a project failing because of execution risk, right? So when you look at Ioneer, like they have high percentages of lithium in clay, and then they're using a DLE type technology to extract it, right? So if they were to fail, they would, I don't think would fail because um, the lithium doesn't exist. I mean, I think we we can empirically prove that it exists. I think if they were to fail, they would fail because the costs of executing on DLE would be much higher than what they're projecting. And so it's an execution risk problem, right? So now the question becomes, once they fail, we would obviously restructure the loan and do whatever it is that we could help them with to try to make sure that they succeeded. But if they're throwing in the towel, right, because all those things have been exhausted, well, now the equity gets wiped out of the project and you're left with only our debt right? Because we would take ownership of the project as the senior debt. And then you would try to find, right, for-profit companies from, you know, around the world that would say that we actually want to buy into this project because we have uh, an enhanced approach to DLE that we think will work that, you know, that that Ioneer couldn't make work, right? It, theoretically. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so you are the senior debt. So everything right. else goes before you. So that's your buffer is... If there's a if there's a slight delay or what have you, they have the right to raise more equity and and try and make it work. You're 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 the cornerstone. You're the senior debt. You get to then restructure. Yeah, I mean we are as I suggested before, we get no upside, 
we only have downside. <laughs> and and with that protection comes all of these rights as as the senior debt. On Ioneer, I, I noticed because we know them for a long time, they signed an agreement with Sabanya to be their equity partner to fund, you know, pretty much 50%, you know, of the yeah. equity. They had a definitive feasibility study and were very advanced in their, you know, front end, front end engineering and design. And they had uh, appointed, I think, three offtake partners. I think they had LG, Echo Pro, and uh, yeah. I forget who else. But they don't have, you know, the Fish and Wildlife Department, you know, and, and the team's buckwheat. You know, that was a condition precedent. But yeah. in order to get to your conditional commitment, do you need an offtake? Do you need a DFS? Do you need, you know, an equity partner? No. Well, I mean, so let, let, let's maybe parse this a little bit. To get a conditional commitment, right, you don't need the offtakes and or the equity identified, right? We have to believe that you can raise it. So we do due diligence there. Like you can't just like come in with a piece of paper, um, but you don't actually have to have it closed, right? And one of the CPs to closing is that you can prove to us that you have access to the equity necessary to be able to match our debt, so that you know the the project can confidently move forward, as well as the NEPA, as well as you know some of the other pieces, right? On the offtake agreements, we have the ability, particularly out of the Energy Act of 2020, to be able to hire a third-party firm and use one of their most conservative uh, curves that they have for the price of lithium or the price of whatever the commodity is, and then underwrite to that price. Now, by definition, that curve is going to be more conservative because we're using the most conservative curve that they have. Um, than what an offtake agreement would be, right? And so if they choose to go down the route of not having an offtake agreement, they are necessarily going to get less debt from us, right? So that the, the advance rate that we provide may only be a 40% loan to value instead of a 55% loan to value, right? Because we're using a more conservative underwriting case for, um, for the curve. So, so the offtake agreements are not required but you could imagine it's a business decision on the part of the, the sponsor, right? They might say, well, the offtake agreements that we can get now are at such ridiculously low prices that we're choosing not to sign one. And we're choosing to take less debt from the loan programs office um, because we think we're leaving too much money on the table. That's a perfectly reasonable thing for them to do. But if they wanted to get a higher amount of debt from us, such that they have a lower weighted average cost of capital, well, then they would go out and do the hard work and get the get the offtake agreements. Okay. And a lot of these offtake agreements, they don't disclose the terms, but you as a lender, you see the terms. You, you know- We do see the terms and we underwrite yeah. them in our model directly. Yeah. Okay. Because Lithium Americas, I know you, you, you probably can't speak about things, but whatever's in the public domain, they announced an agreement with GM and they've talked about getting a loan from your office of anywhere between 55 and 75% of the debt. And if you do the math- of GM's equity commitment, if they get 75% from your office, I think the 2.3 billion of their project, they don't need any full, full, any more equity funding, assuming there's no cost overruns. But if they only get 55%, then there's like a 400 or $500 billion gap, you know, by my math. So I was just wondering, by having GM as their partner for 10 years, plus another five years, and there's definitely a pricing commitment within that offtake, which hasn't been disclosed. You'll know what that is, right? And if you do give them a yeah, loan- Yeah, and it's just you, math. You know, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so this stuff is just math, right? Like, I mean, it's not any more complicated than what I just said, right? So we put that into the model 
And if it's contracted, right, obviously it depends on who the contracted party is. If they're a fly-by-night company, then that's different than if it's General Motors, right? So that's great. And then, and we have a debt service coverage ratio for the contracted cash flows, right? And that's going to be a much tighter debt service coverage ratio for something that's contracted with roughly an investment grade offtake versus somebody who has no investment grade offtake and could go out of business next week. Um, and then if it's not contracted, well, then you have a wider debt service coverage ratio. So you get dinged twice, right? So if it's not contracted, you get dinged because we're using the price curve from the most conservative curve that comes from these credible third parties that we that we hire to give us curves. And we have an expanded debt service coverage ratio to that curve because it's not contracted, right? So you get dinged on both sides. So this is essentially, as you said, you're a commercial bank. So you're going to have commercial terms. That's just how it looks. Yeah, but we're not charging it 12%. No, no, 100%. <laughs> so, um, I mean, you know, it's 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 one of those things where everybody wants it all. And I was like, but, but I mean, just to like end on this note, though, because I think it's important, is that we really are in the United States of America, we are a capitalist society that's private sector led and government enabled. And I find it quite rich that people are coming to me going, well, why can't you match what China does or this other group does? I was like, do you really want to live under that term, those terms and conditions? No. Well, then let's not like go the extreme route, right? Like we're private sector led. That means that people have to be able to cajole their way into raising equity. They have to figure out how to like actually succeed in an environment that's brutal. I mean, like I've, done that for 20 years. It's it's not a picnic out there to go hat in hand to these investors and ask them for money and figure out how to like create like a hype cycle around your company and get people to like, you know, buzz and hopefully get, you know, multiple term sheets so that there's a competition, you know, and you can get better terms. And if you, if you can only get one term sheet, then you're screwed. Like that, those are the rules of engagement in the United States of America. Right. I mean, and that is what we expect people to do. And then once you've proven that you can hit some of those milestones, then we match you with all the tools that we have out of DOD, out of the Department of Energy, out of other places. But like, like this is not expected to be easy, but it is straightforward. Can I ask one more question? I'm mindful yeah. of your time. Um, news is going to come out today or was over the weekend that Ford and CATL are going to be building a plant, you know, in Michigan. All right. So the Chinese yeah. investing in America, if indeed that is happening again, going back to lack, you know, lack is talking about splitting into two companies and they've telegraphed because Ganfeng is an owner, you know, of their yeah. company. Like that was kind of problematic. But if, if um, CATL and Ford could partner, you know, why can't Ganfeng and lack or, or Ganfeng and Albemarle or Ganfeng and Piedmont, you know, partner to build lithium hydroxide production in America, you know, and possibly get a loan from the loan projects office. You said in Steve Levine's so, interview that, that that it is possible for Chinese companies to get there. So is yeah. that, how, how do you help us understand that a little bit? So the loan programs office has a long track record of getting of foreign investors investing in these projects that we then provide debt to, right? So there's no like ban on foreign investors into these projects. That being said, at very early stages in the process, because we don't want to waste anybody's time, we make people give us a rundown of all of their foreign investors and you know foreign nationals that might be in their management team, et cetera. And we run them through intelligence sort of services and efforts to make sure that the people that 
um, are investing in this don't have previous bad behavior that they've engaged in. And, you know, unfortunately, we've had several that have come up positive for previous bad behavior. And we've had to say to the applicants, either get rid of this investor or, you know, like uh, we can't help you. Right. And so we're not going to knowingly invest in a project where somebody has, you know, direct ties to, um, you know, a government that could just say, we want you to do something that's non-business, non-capitalist oriented to be able to, you know, send a message to the United States or whatever it is, right? So there has to be some independence that is um, is shown. Um, and they have to be uh, an investor that doesn't have a previous track record of bad behavior, right? And so that is something we check for. And if they meet those requirements, then we're happy to provide a loan. And if they don't, then, well, then we don't. Okay. So by reading into that, is, is there any problem with Ganfeng specifically? Because there, it is very notable. I honestly don't know. I mean, yeah. I'm not evading the question. I actually don't know. Okay. So like, but, but, <laughs> but, but I'm, but I'm, but I'm, but either way, right? I'm just saying everyone goes through this process. We've thrown out Russian oligarchs. We've had lots of other folks that, you know, have tried to use a loan programs office. And we're like, you know, like, I'm just like, one of the things I just want to make sure that I'm being crystal clear about, this is not like the U.S. government national security piece, although it is, just as a commercial bank, if you provide someone 10 to 15 years of financing, you do a standard KYC process. Right. You do a know your customer process because you don't want like, you know, like a Ukraine conflict occurring. Suddenly you've got, you know, sanctions put on to a country and suddenly like, you know, you can't do business anymore because that person that you're working with personal accounts have been frozen. Right. And so like I just like this is so standard as to not actually be a surprise to anybody who, you know, is some sort of version of a capitalist. Yeah, these are long-term decisions for sure. Right. So like, so this is not, I mean, look, I, I just want to make sure that we're all being crystal clear that like, that this is a long-term decision as Rodney suggested. And we all just need to be mindful of the fact that people have to go through these processes. The last thing I would say though, is that our loan on average is a billion dollars. If you're not a big boy with big boy pants on, please don't apply to our loan program, <laughs> right? I mean, come on. Like, I don't need crybabies in the loan program's office. Yeah, it, it's, it's funny you use that term, big boy pants. Uh, Lithium Americas, uh, when they were listed in Canada, uh, I persuaded them that they need to list in, on the New York Stock Exchange and they need to put their big boy pants on. And that advice that I gave them came to me from a very good friend of mine, who's Keith Phillips, who did the same thing when he... Uh, listed Piedmont. And that's what you are seeing more and more companies properly fully list like MP materials. That's if you right. want to tap into American capital markets, if you're Australian, if you're Canadian and you, you want to tap into funding, you got a list here in the US, but also clearly you need to have US And subject projects. yourself to the SEC and due diligence and all of the higher standards that we feature, right? I mean, that's that's how this works, right? If you want to if you want to do, you know, 20, 30, 50 million dollars here and there, there are lots of other ways to do it on the AIM market or other places. But if you want to do billion dollar scale stuff, like, you know, let, let's meet billion dollar level professionalism. So okay. thanks Jigger, so much. Jigger, th thank, thank you. You started this year saying this is going to be a crazy year for you. You have a ton of things to deploy. 
And we're looking forward to seeing deploy, deploy, deploy to at least three lithium projects maybe this year and hope to uh, you know have you on maybe in six or nine months time after those deployments to kind of catch up on, on where we are. So it's gonna be an exciting year. Thank you very much for taking the time, real, real privilege. Well, my pleasure. And please keep the suggestions coming. I'm certainly not the world's expert on mining, but I am an expert at execution. And we're going we're gonna to execute here. I mean, we've got to get, get applicants to do their part, but we're going to execute on our side. Mm-hmm.